Ladies and gentlemen, this episode is sponsored by GiveWell. Imagine if every year you saved a person's life. One year you rescued someone from a burning building. The next year you saved someone from drowning. The year after that, you're out for dinner with your partner. You notice someone having a heart attack. You perform CPR and save their life. Think about the warm glow you'd feel living this extraordinary life. The truth is we have an opportunity to do this every single year of our lives just by targeting our donations to the most effective charities in the world. How is this possible? Three premises. Number one, if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you make more than 19.5 thousand US dollars per year post-tax and are therefore in the richest 10% of the world. Number two, we can do 100 times more good for others than for ourselves by focusing on the parts of the world most in need because a doubling of income will always increase subjective well-being by the same amount. And three, in the same way as the success of for-profit companies isn't normally distributed, some charities are vastly more effective than others. But how do you find the most effective charities? Well, since 2010, GiveWell.org has helped over 50,000 donors find the places where their donations can save or improve lives most. Here's how. GiveWell dedicates over 20,000 hours a year to researching charitable organizations and handpicks a few of the highest impact evidence-based charities. The best ones GiveWell has found can save a statistical life for three dollars to $5,000. Donors have used GiveWell to donate more than $750 million. These donations will save over 75,000 lives and improve the lives of millions more. Here's the best part. GiveWell is free. They publish all of their research on their site for free so donors can understand their work and recommendations. GiveWell doesn't take a cut of your donation. They allocate your tax-deductible donation to the charity you choose. I personally give to the Against Malaria Foundation, which distributes bed nets to prevent malaria at a cost of about $5 to provide one net. If you've never donated to GiveWell's recommended charities before, you can have your donation matched up to $1,000 before the end of August or as long as matching funds last. Just go to givewell.org swagman and pick podcast and the Jolly Swagman at checkout. Make sure they know that you heard about GiveWell from the Jolly Swagman podcast to get your donation matched. That's givewell.org swagman, select podcast and then select the Jolly Swagman at checkout. This episode is also brought to you by Blinkist. The opportunity cost of reading a book isn't really the $30 price tag. It mostly consists in the hours of time you invest in reading or partly reading the book. Hours which you could spend reading another book, building a business, rollerblading, whatever it is you like to do. To help me triage which books to read, I often use Blinkist. Blinkist is an app which takes the key ideas and insights from thousands of nonfiction titles across 27 categories and gathers gathers them together in 15-minute text and audio explainers that help you understand the core ideas. It's kind of like Amazon's Look Inside feature or Kindle's sample feature, but better because it actually condenses the whole thesis of the book, making it perfect for those who want to cheat at their book clubs. Blinkist has extended their philosophy of less is more to long podcast episodes, presenting the key learnings from famous shows in 15-minute shortcasts. They do this by directly collaborating with the podcast creators, like Michael Lewis, who hosts Against the Rules. For Lewis's part, he personally shares the highlights from his own podcasts with you. To discover the world of blinks and, shot- and shortcasts, head to blinkers.com slash swagman. Right now, they have a special offer just for JSP listeners. You can get 25% off an annual subscription and try Blinkist Premium free for seven days. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, dot com slash swagman. You're listening to the Jolly Swagman podcast, Here's your host, Joe Walker. 
Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, swagmen and swagettes, welcome back. It is great to have you back. It is great to be back. Before I introduce the episode, let me address my recent hiatus. Now, I've been off the air for a couple of days now. How? Wait, how long has it actually been? Wait. Oh, geez. A couple of months. Wow, that has gone quickly. The weeks have blurred together. I'm very sorry for my absence and more particularly for not updating you. The truth is I haven't had time to put out content worthy of you all. And I would rather make you wait than make you listen to something that I didn't think would maximally benefit you. At the start of the year, back when I committed to doing one podcast episode per week, I said, this is the sort of podcast where I'll never be captured by my audience. I'm not going to feed you up more of what you like, like some insidious algorithm. Sometimes you'll be disappointed in me. Sometimes you'll disagree with me, but that's okay. Well, now I'll add to that advice. I also won't push out content for the sake of it. I want this to be a podcast where you can come and listen to an episode and know that it'll be important, not just another weekly show where authors are flogging their new books and the content is replaceable, not unique. So, that is part of my rationale, but what have I been doing? Well, this podcast is not the only hat I wear. Uh, I'm also now director helping to scale part of the operations function at an amazing Australian-born startup called Forage. We're changing the world of education by enabling companies as opposed to universities to teach skills to students. So, you go onto our platform, for example, and take a software engineering course by electronic arts or a law program by Wilson Sonsini. I'm very excited about the company for a number of reasons. And we also on Friday announced our series B, which was led by Blackbird Ventures. Obviously raising money is not a perfect proxy for success, but nevertheless, it's some measure of what the team has achieved. So that is part of what I've been, what has been keeping me from podcasting. On top of that, if I didn't have enough spinning plates in the air already, I've just been part of launching a new global monthly magazine, which I should plug, called The Podcast Reader, which publishes select long-form transcripts. We have agreements with this podcast. That agreement wasn't hard to secure. Conversations with Tyler and Econ Talk. So how did this happen? In January, a podcast listener, David Loggia, a great man, reached out to me and we got chatting about how we both liked long-form podcasts, but they're not always easy to consume. You can't skim them. It's easy to drift off. Pausing and rewinding are impractical. And with friend of the pod, the great Nick Gruen, we set up this magazine. Now, Dave and the team around it have done much more work than I have. They're the real drivers of the project, but it's amazing. You can get edition one. It launched in August. It's a real magazine, beautiful and glossy. You can hold it in your hands. Edition one features Tyler Cowan's conversations with Margaret Atwood and Peter Thiel my conversations with Ali Hochschild and Frank Wilczek and Russ Roberts' conversation with Christopher Hitchens, the transcript of which I believe has never before been fully published. That's the podcast reader. You can buy a copy, print or digital or subscribe at podread.org. And I just love the serendipity that a podcast listener, someone way better and more successful than me, contacts me through my website and seven months later, a magazine exists. Radical uncertainty truly is the zest of life. Another time we can talk about why I think it's important to work in early stage companies like startups and do real things as opposed to just hosting podcasts. But I've spoken about myself for the last 
three or four minutes, and it's time to introduce this episode. My guest is Ole Peters. Ole is a physicist. He's a fellow at the London Mathematical Laboratory, the principal investigator of its ergodicity economics program, and an external professor at the Santa Fe Institute. Ole works on different conceptualizations of randomness in the context of economics. Like I suspect many people, I first encountered Ole on page 224 of Nassim Taleb's book, Skin in the Game. But like many people, I also suspect the description of Ole's work in that book left me wanting more. Ole's been driving the ergodicity economics research agenda since at least 2011. Ergodicity is an esoteric mathematical concept, which we clarify, explain, and explore in this episode. Now, before we begin, I'll note that this was Ole's first ever podcast. It is therefore somewhat of an historic episode. I sense that he is rather ginger about appearing on shows, given some of the, let's say, public communications he receives from economists and others. So I'm honored he decided to join me on the show. In preparing for this podcast, I've benefited from the cor- from correspondence with a number of people, including but not limited to Matthew Ford, John Kay, Mervyn King, Jason Collins, Michael Hare, David Sloan Wilson, and Timo Henkel. Of course, any mistakes of omission or commission are entirely my own. Please enjoy the conversation. Ole Peters, welcome to the Jolly Swagman podcast. Thanks for having me. It is great to talk to you. Great to finally talk to you. I feel like this has been a long time coming. <laughs> and this is your your first <laughs> podcast, right? Yeah, it's my first podcast. And I think we've been trying to set this up for, I don't know, when did you contact me? Two years ago? Three years ago? <laughs> <laughs> I think two years ago. And then I, I, gave, I gave you some time and then I, I contacted you again this year or end of last year but it's great that we're finally Somewhere here there. as you know yeah well i guess time chance and and podcasts happeneth to all these days and you're the, <laughs> the latest casualty but we're, we're going to discuss ergodicity probability theory economics and more but first um because this is our first time talking together i was hoping to briefly get to know you a little better so where were you born and where did you grow up Oh, in Hamburg. That's that's easy. I can answer that question. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was born in Hamburg and I grew up there and moved to London eventually, um, studied physics there. Oh, well, and then I moved to the US for a little bit for my postdoc um, at Los Alamos and the Santa Fe Institute. And, and then I moved back to London. <clears throat> when did you first realize you were interested in mathematics and physics? probably I don't know I mean I've probably always been interested in it you know sort of runs in the family a bit Um, so I've always been exposed to it and I think um, in in, in, when it came to thinking about what to do for university I, I thought physics was a reasonable thing to do because I felt it was something where you need a young brain to to really, you know, uh, get into it. And I was I had other interests too, but I thought maybe I can pursue them later and I'll start with physics and it really can't hurt to know a bit about that. 
Why is rain like earthquakes? <laughs> ah, okay. Uh, yeah, we're going back a long time. Um, <laughs> seriously? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But we can talk about that too. Um, we can talk about that. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, let's do it. Give us, give us the, the short version. <laughs> yeah, so this is a very long time ago. This is, uh, uh, this was a, a, a problem I was working on um, in my final undergraduate year, and it then also became part of my PhD thesis and sort of haunted me for for a long time. Um, it's it's a concept that came up sometime in the late eighties called self organized criticality. Um, and the idea there is that some systems, mm, by their own dynamics, self-tune themselves in a way uh, that that puts them at uh, at a critical point um, where where their global behavior changes. Basically, um, so this is inspired by phase transitions in, in equilibrium mm -hmm. systems but it's a um, it's an idea for non-equilibrium systems so um, specifically you're driving a system in some way so it's a non-equilibrium system that means you're you're slowly putting energy into it and uh, this energy builds up in the system and occasionally it's released and by doing that under certain circumstances you can you can get to a situation where a system is always at this critical point between being at rest and releasing energy in sort of burst like events mm. and um, earthquakes are one mm, example and rainfall is another example so in the case of rainfall you're constantly driving the system with uh, solar radiation you're basically pumping water vapor into the atmosphere all the time and you're destabilizing the atmosphere all the time by heating the ground and, and cooling the top and every now and then you get these burst-like events convective events that produce rainfall so it's you know it's sort of the, the statistics of the energy releases from the system uh, are similar in the case of rainfall and and earthquakes that's where that oh. came from but that was a long time ago so real yes <laughs> thank you very much <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to start with at least one. But so in the 2000s, you're studying weather patterns. And then just before Christmas in 2006, you start working on ergodicity and economics, right? Yes, true. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, what, what prompted that? How did you come to it? I was curious about finance, actually. So I started looking into some um, some problems in finance and contacted people who, you know, I thought might point me in interesting directions. And I more or less immediately uh, got to Kelly's work and thought, well, this is sort of phrased in a, a language I'm... I found surprising because, you know, it's all phrased in terms of information theory, which is perfectly fine. Um, but I felt 
it it didn't emphasize this point enough that it's really a problem of ergodicity. So so yeah, so I got interested in that, and um, and then I said pretty pretty much immediately that year, or 2007, I I wrote the first draft for this paper uh, called Optimal Leverage from Non-Ergodicity. And I thought this is very nice because you can solve this leverage problem uh, um, just by computing a time average instead of an expectation value. Um, and I <laughs> And I showed it to some people and they said, no, but that's not possible because you need to have a utility function in there and I said what is a utility function um, and, and so then I went down this this rabbit hole of um, you know how these types of problems had been treated in the literature centuries before um, and uh, and yeah I mean that's been that's been pretty exciting since then so that paper optimal leverage from non-ergodicity and another paper, The Time Resolution of the St. Petersburg Paradox, those were the two papers that sort of kick-started the formal development of ergodicity economics, right? Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, I think that's right. They were the first to be published, yeah. They follow on from each other, right? The um, <laughs> Actually, exactly the story I just, uh, I just mentioned. So I... I worked on this leverage problem and then people told me about utility and I thought where does that come from and that's what got me to Bernoulli in the 1738 paper and I thought well okay so that's um, well, that's interesting because I could solve the leverage problem without using a utility function um, utility functions were introduced to solve the St. Petersburg paradox so I should be able to solve the St. Petersburg paradox without a utility function and sure enough that works so it is really one paper following from from the next, uh, the previous. <laughs> What's the most effective way you've found to explain the concept of ergodicity? Oh, well, that really depends on the level of technical detail you want. But I think for you know for a podcast. Um, dear we use we try to be very clear when we talk about ergodicity so it's not it's not a vague notion um it is a concept in dynamical systems so it, it's a concept in mathematics and dynamical systems and stochastic processes um, and it's a property of mathematical objects like let's say a stochastic process and the only ergodic property or the only definition of ergodicity that we are ever interested in is um, the following. If you have some quantity, uh, a random quantity that fluctuates over time, so in other words, a stochastic process, then you can take two different types of averages. You can take um, an uh, an ensemble average of this quantity, so uh, you can average over the statistical ensemble, um, which is all the possible realizations of this process at some moment in time. Or you can focus on one single realization of the stochastic process and average the quantity over a long time. And if these two ways of averaging give you the same result, then 
the quantity you're averaging is ergodic. And if they don't, it's non-ergodic. And if they don't, it's non-ergodic. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't the problem... know if this is informative at all. <laughs> no, no. It, um, well, well, it is, but we, we'll keep building on it. So... Good. The, the, the first point to, to pick up on there is that we're applying the adjective ergodic to an observable or a quantity in a mathematical model. So ergodicity is, is a property of mathematical objects, not of physical objects. So sometimes people like to say swanky sounding statements like life is non-ergodic or the world is non-ergodic or the economy is non-ergodic, but they're not being strictly accurate. Yeah, I think that's, yes, that's absolutely, that's actually a really key point in this debate because somehow the debate spilled over uh, and became bigger maybe than I had uh, expected in a sense. Um, so these statements, life is non-ergodic, I mean, they're, they're sort of poetry, right? And mm. that's totally fine, but it's not a scientific statement. It's the sort of thing you... You know, you might think while you're having a shower or, or something or driving around <laughs> in your car and you're thinking big thoughts, um, but it's it's n not strictly meaningful unless you, you know, unless you really specify what you mean by it. And the moment you start specifying what you mean by it in the terms that I mentioned, so where you want to test equality of a time average and an expectation value or an ensemble average, um, then you get to the point that you got to, which is that this is a statement about an observable, a, a mathematical object, and, and really nothing else. Strictly, that's it. So this whole part of the debate is really about the relationship between models and reality. Um, so when you speak about ergodicity, you speak about the properties of a model of something real. And sometimes we are sloppy in our language. So we might say something like stock prices are non-ergodic or whatever it is. Uh, stock price is a physical observable. It's not a mathematical object. So what we're really saying is that we have, we have in mind some mathematical model that we think is a reasonable analogy to the physical uh, object that is a stock price and then we make a statement about that mathematical model um, regarding its ergodicity or not I want to come back to ergodicity and how it's relevant to finance and economics but first I'd love to go back in time and we can trace the, the history of the theory of probability actually I want to go back even further, I want to go to time itself and start there. So, what does time mean without chance? Well, probably not much. I mean, you know, there's this the, the Solomon quote, time and chance happeneth to them all. Um, and I think the notion of time and chance there is that there's sort of two sides of one coin um, if there is no chance no randomness then time becomes 
sort of like a knob that you can turn back and forth. Everything is determined, right? The, every moment in the past determines every moment in the future. Um, so time is then perhaps an illusion that we, with our limited consciousness, believe to experience. Um, but it has less of a physical meaning. Um, whereas the moment you have randomness, you can you can start <laughs> you can start thinking about time in terms of what is determined and what is not. So the past is then everything that is determined because it's already happened, and the future is that which is not determined and it's it's open. Could you talk about the connection between time and risk? Yes, I mean, you know, these are they're such trivial statements when I say them out loud. <laughs> But um, uh, yeah, time and risk. I mean, uh, risk doesn't really exist if you don't have irreversible time. So if you imagine, you know, imagine a computer game where uh, you can enter a casino and uh, gamble. So you enter this casino, you put everything on black and you lose. But because it's a computer game, you were able to save the state of the game before you entered the casino. So you jump back to that state and you go back to the casino and you put everything on black and then or on red or whatever you want to do. And you just keep doing this until you win. So there is no risk. You have you have a risk-free casino. Um, so if you have this option of stepping back in time then then risk doesn't exist and i think as long as we don't fundamentally have a mindset that is informed by the irreversibility of time we will get questions of risk wrong You mentioned Ecclesiastes 9.11 before, time and chance happeneth to them all. Are there any other beautiful depictions in literature of time's irreversibility? I would imagine... I was thinking yes, of... Yes, I mean, yeah, okay, tell me. I was thinking me, of, what, uh, what you of thinking? Nietzsche in, in Thus Spoke Zarathustra. The quote is, it was... That is what the will's teeth gnashing and most lonely affliction is called. Powerless against that which has been done, the will is an angry spectator of all things past. The will cannot will backwards. That it cannot break time and time's desire, that is the will's most lonely affliction. Yes, that sounds familiar. <laughs> where, where did you get that quote from? <laughs> I think yeah. I heard you read it out in a lecture once. Um, yeah, yeah, that's true. I think I read it out funny. in German just to confuse everyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I was thinking, um, you know, in the interests of fairness and, and you know, being fair to the economists in the crowd, we should think of um, some beautiful quotes on ergodicity. I was kind of like searching around and I, I actually managed to find a couple that capture the the other idea. So there's Ecclesiastes 1.6. The wind goeth toward the south and turneth unto the north. It whirleth about continually and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. <laughs> so that's kind of like an ergodicity flavored quote. And then there's another one. I'll read this out. Tell, tell me if you... 
Tell me if you know where this one's from. Still round the corner there may wait, a new road or a secret gate, and though we pass them by today, tomorrow we may come this way and take the hidden paths that run towards the moon or to the sun. Ooh, no, I hadn't heard that one. What, what is that? That is J.R.R. Tolkien, a walking song. Ah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. We've spoken about time. I want to move to the, the history of the theory of probability. And we're not going to cover the whole history, but I'd love to just touch on some key landmarks with you. And the first is Cardano, who lived from 1501 to 1576. He was a physician and a mathematician from Milan, among many other things. And he wrote a, a book called Liber de Ludo Alii, which is the book on the games of chance, which was a kind of manual for gamblers. And it's particularly interesting because people hold up the Pascal Fermat correspondence of 1654 as the sort of beginning of probability theory. Yet here was Cardano writing around... 1550, more than 100 years earlier. Obviously, it wasn't publishable at the time. I don't think the manuscript was published until 1663. Um, but there are some amazing ideas and quotes and theories expressed in the book. I think you read Cardano about 12 years ago because we, we were discussing Cardano by email. What did you take from Cardano? Hmm. So... I mean, in terms of the history of probability theory, Cardano is at that that is in this transition period between a pre-formal and a formal uh, uh, time in in the theory of of probability, and his thinking is. I think quite quite humble and quite practical. So, the the book is called "Book on the on Games of Dice," um, and it it really is the sort of wisdom that he felt he had collected by gambling. And you know, he he, he thinks it's not a bad idea to gamble a little because life is full of surprises, and and maybe it's good to uh, have some some experience with that and some practice you know so so bet some money and learn how to lose without getting too upset about it and um, so he has a lot of good advice I mean there are some some passages where uh, he says so I don't have the quotes here in front of me but um, you know he says that it's inevitable that he who should play less frequently will be uh, less skilled but should you therefore abandon all study of the arts um, so that you may become proficient at games of dice. And, of course, it's a rhetorical question, right? So he says there are all sorts of ways to expose yourself to basically random stuff that will happen to you. And if you get a little uh, better at understanding the rules of the game that uses this sort of randomness, then, yeah, you can probably win at games of dice where you can you can make some money but you haven't really understood anything fundamental you've you've uh, abandoned the arts so the arts to him are uh, uh, ways of understanding nature not arbitrary man-made games 
So translated into today's world, this means something like, you know, don't spend all day looking at idiotic graphs of stock prices going up and down and wondering how you can profit from some silly game we've we've made up. You know, try to try to understand a little bit about the world instead. So it's those sort of passages that I find that I find most uh, most interesting in Cardano. But in terms of the um, the formal theory, he he did introduce uh, some some f some early ideas of um, of combinatorics. So he he started asking, you know, you roll some dice and how many ways are there of actually I don't know exactly what he did I can't remember uh, because this question comes up a few times in later papers too but you know let's say you take two dice and you roll how many different ways are there of rolling an eight or something like that right so this notion that there is an ensemble of possible futures before you roll the dice and you can count the equiprobable states in that uh, in that ensemble um, that that is something that Cardano seems to have uh, uh, thought about. Um, there's also a paper by Galileo, I think. Well, it's somewhere between, maybe it's from 1623 or in the decade before that, uh, where he does the same thing. So he very explicitly counts the possible ways of throwing different. I think it's with three how many ways are there of throwing a 10 or something like that uh, mm -hmm. so these ideas were uh, they were in the air Cardano is probably the first to, to write them down um, although of course his book wasn't published until long after his death um, Galileo you know had a had a knack for getting himself into into hot waters uh, <laughs> so you know whenever there was something you weren't supposed to do he, he would he would go there Cardano too. I think he was arrested by the Inquisition for for a little bit for uh, for casting the horoscope of Christ. This was sort of a popular thing to do at the time. But um, I mean, an, an accomplished Inquisitor would have probably found better reasons for his arrest <laughs> because he, he was doing a lot of interesting things. Um, Yeah, so so that's okay. That's that's where Cardano sits. So sort of in this, you know, just on the cusp, just as it's becoming uh, formal. And then Fermat and Pascal are, are just very explicit um, in their uh, in their combinatorics, and especially in the invention of the of the expectation value. So averaging over these possible futures, uh, over averaging some some uh, random quantity. Uh, Over, over all possible future states, that's something they identify as an as an important uh, uh, trick. It's probably the most important concept they introduce, right? I think so. I think. I mean, this, it's 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 crucial. It's the solution that they propose to the problem they're studying, right? So they are studying this problem of the unfinished game. Um, where you you know you imagine that we're we're playing a game of dice and it's I don't know maybe it's just you and me and we play three rounds where in each round I, I roll a dice then you roll a dice and we or die and then we we count the total points and whoever has the most points at the end uh, wins the game 
and we play three rounds and now we've only played two rounds and uh, then you drop the die and it falls off the terrace where we're sitting and drops into the ocean and is forever lost and so we can't finish the game but we've both bet some money in this game and we now want to find a uh, a fair way to split the pot of cash that's sitting on the table um, and you know you had seven points and I had five so how do we how do we split the hundred dollars that we that we put on the table that that's the specific question that they were um, they were asking um, and their answer to the question was well the fair way of um, splitting the pot is to give to both you and me the expectation values of our um, our winnings at the uh, state the game was in when it was when it was abandoned when we had to stop mm. so there were there were earlier treatments of this problem even pre cardano there's something from the from the 15th century even um, but they didn't get there you don't have to get there there are many ways of resolving the problem you could say well you know we didn't finish the game so let's just <laughs> let's just return uh, our wages to to everyone so we you know we do if we each put 50 bucks on the table then we take our 50 bucks and and that's it or we say well we couldn't finish it so who knows what might have happened uh, let's give the money to charity or you know i don't know you just lost your job so why don't you just take the money there are many many ways of uh splitting this in a fair way but the way that pascal and fermat proposed has has nice mathematical properties um you know linearity properties so there are reasons why their solution became so prominent why the expectation value became became so prominent it does raise a question or it poses a puzzle. So the ancients gambled, you know, the Athenians had dice, they played with dice, and the mathematics of probability theory aren't particularly hard. Yet it took until, you know, the 16th century with Gidano or the 17th century with Fermat and Pascal for probability theory to be developed. Newton and Leibniz are devising calculus around the same time, which is way harder. Why did it take so long for the mathematics of probability to arrive in the history of human thought? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I can only speculate. Um, but, yeah, why, why is that? So, first of all, I think the people who were engaged in risky business knew a lot about risky business just from experience. So, you know, insurance contracts were written by the Babylonians, basically. Maritime insurance is a very, very old uh, business. Um, and that's about, you know, gauging risks. And uh, so there's a, there are actually a lot of practices um relating to to risk and risk mitigation and of course risk assessment that are much much older than the theory of of probability um i think so and gamblers of course so some of these problems 
like the problem of the unfinished game, uh, th those problems were really motivated by gamblers who said, come on, I'm constantly making quantitative decisions based on games of dice. How am I doing this? Because I know I'm doing it more or less right. I, you know, I'm, I'm surviving here. Um, but they just had rules of thumb. They had sort of empirically established that there are more ways of throwing I don't know, a 10 than a 9 or something. Um, <clears throat> with three dice uh, so anyway so there's, there's, there's the empirical side that existed and maybe the need for a formal theory was n not really recognized you know because there was this practical knowledge out there I think that's one um, but there is something deeper And I think it has to do with ancient worldviews and, and cosmology. Um, so the way the ancient Greeks saw the cosmos, well, or most of the ancient Greeks, um, is the, the geocentric uh, model where uh, you divide the world into a celestial sphere and a terrestrial sphere and um, the celestial spheres where you know the stars move around on their perfectly circular trajectories and then there are some aberrant planets that move around on less circular trajectories um, but all of it is is pristine and mathematically determined so this is sort of a platonic world of perfection and and ideals um, and this is contrasted with down here on earth and down here on earth is basically just chaos and decay and most of all time so these two realms are a time uh, a time bound realm here on earth and a timeless realm up above and this this goes through all kinds of um, spiritual systems including christianity you know the eternal soul would live in heaven um, and uh, these used to be very spatial physical uh, images and literally you, you look it was about looking right you could look up at the sky at night and say oh look at this mathematical perfection up there mathematics of course is another one of these eternal things right uh, mathematical truth is eternally true so it's something timeless so it belongs to the celestial timeless world and it doesn't belong on earth And so it's not just a theory of randomness that was uh, lacking in a sense, but it's a theory, <laughs> it's physical theories in general for terrestrial processes. The idea was that there, there are no laws down here. We can look around and everything just seems a mess. Uh, whereas if we look up at the sky, that's where we can have theories because things are nice and ordered and pristine. And down here, what's the point? Mm. So, and this is the whole spiritual struggle of the 17th century, I think, that you have this collision of those two realms, of the timeless realm and, and the time-bound realm. And so probability theory is sort of stage two, right? It happens in the 1650s, whereas this... Well, Galileo is, is 
twenties, sixteen thirties. That's when that's when it really sort of heats up around him. But of course, Galileo is not the first to suggest heliocentrism. Um, as Copernicus, of course, and and uh, and in antiquity there were there were others. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so you you get this uh, you know you get this clash of worlds, and I think before before that clash of worlds really started happening there wasn't much of an appetite or a or optimism for finding um any laws of nature on earth really you know you had rules of thumb okay but not really laws in the sense that you had uh laws like ptolemy who could tell you when mars would be where you know that was just not expected down down here and so i guess that once galileo <laughs> um yeah pointed that out it became more likely for for all kinds of developments to happen including the development of of probability theory that's so interesting there's another idea this is speculative on my part actually this isn't my idea this is simon tadeo's idea and it kind of connects to the first idea you discussed about how people relied more on heuristics than theories. But the ancients mostly played with dice or knuckle bones that weren't precisely even or fair. They weren't, you know, precision engineered like today's dice. So so gambling was more a process of, of learning empirically about the idiosyncrasies of, of these particular dice or knuckle bones and not about reasoning theoretically speculative idea but pretty interesting might be true i yeah i would imagine that's that's true so you know by the time you get to the formal period there must have been dice must have been somewhat regular because you yeah. know it it made sense to people to count actually what was known empirically at the time of um, uh, even Cardano and, and and Galileo, so so around 1600, um, is very precise. So these these differences in these combinatorial um, uh, differences that you can arrive at by the assumption via the assumption that you have a, a die whose faces are all equally likely to, to show up. They're, they're, they're very small differences that were detected empirically. So, so gamblers knew this. So their, their dice were pretty good at that time. In Roman pretty times, I, I doubt that. I think it was more, more like you said, that you know, you're, you're throwing some knuckle bones. And if you, if you know your particular set of bones, then you, you have a pretty serious advantage over your opponents. <laughs> So let's let's fast forward to 1713, Nicholas Bernoulli and the St. Petersburg Paradox. What is the St. Petersburg Paradox and why is it important? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, every time I try to uh, just go through the uh, definition of the St. Petersburg gamble, I, uh, it always gets sort of weirdly complicated, although it shouldn't be. <laughs> do you want the actual technical definition of the problem, or do you just want to know conceptually what, what's wrong? Oh, we can do both, maybe, and then we'll see. Um, yeah. Okay, so technically, so what had happened? So in the 1650s, 
uh, Fermat and Pascal had this exchange of letters and they, they came up with the expectation value as an important um, quantity for, for random uh, uh, variables or uh, you know quantities that are known. Um, and it, it became really dominant very quickly. So people just felt we've, we've got almost a universal solution to all the problems we might ever encounter that have to do with randomness. So if we have some random quantity, um, we can just get rid of the randomness by replacing that quantity with its, ex with its expectation value and run our analysis as if it wasn't a random quantity, but the expectation value of that random quantity. So you're now not working with random variables anymore, but just with numbers. And that's, of course, much easier. And sometimes uh, it's uh, fine, you know, uh, again, it's a, it's a mathematical model. And in, in some cases that, that describes the physical reality uh, it's supposed to describe well, but sometimes it doesn't. And so Nicholas Bernoulli was very playful. He looked at this and started asking himself in under what circumstances this model was valid and where it would fail. So he's also the first person to, to speak about um, extreme values. And extreme values are, of course, something really, right? That's, that's something very obvious to, to well, maybe that's not the right word, but it's a really good illustration. If you want to explain to someone that the expectation value of some thing is not so important uh, think of anything where the extreme matters hmm. and the extreme often matters like um, a so building a dike for, for example building a dike yeah building a dike but even you know more generally uh, a, a, a chain is as strong as its weakest link so the moment mm -hmm. you have a bunch of elements that all have to work together if one of them breaks, um, uh, the system breaks down. And it, that means any biological organism, any machine, anything uh, breaks down, dies the moment its weakest vital component breaks down. So that's an extreme value, right? You're looking for the weakest. So, so there's the, 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 the superlative, the, the extreme. Um, so you're looking for the weakest link. And that's something that, that Bernoulli uh, sort of noticed, right? That in many cases, what determines the behavior of the physical system is the weakest component, not the average component. And, um, but that's a bit earlier. I think that's 1708. And then in 1713, he, he said, okay, now let me hit you on the head with something. If you still believe that expectation values are the answer to everything, um, I'll give you a gamble and we all know how to evaluate gambles. You compute the expected value of your net income from this gamble. So you may buy a lottery ticket, you pay some fee and you receive perhaps some, some winnings. So you, you compute this net gain and if it's positive, then you take the gamble. The net expected gain. If it's positive, you take the gamble. If it's negative, you don't take the gamble. So he just invented a gamble where that expected gain 
it doesn't exist because it diverges. It's it's infinite. Of course, it's not a physical gamble because nothing physical is infinite, but it's a nice mathematical joke. So the St. Petersburg paradox is basically this mathematical joke where he, he says, uh, okay, let's let's play the following game. I, I, I toss a coin and um, if it shows heads, you win a dollar. And if it shows tails, I'll toss the coin again and if it then shows head, heads, I'll give you $2. And if it then shows tails, I'll toss the coin again. And uh, if on the next toss it shows um, um, heads, I'll give you $4. And then $8. And then $16. And $32. And $64. And 128 And so on. So you go up uh, <clears throat> by factors of two. And um, the trouble here is that the probability of winning a large amount goes down in proportion to that amount. So if you are computing the expectation value and you're multiplying the gain and its probability, then every possible gain contributes a finite amount to the expected gain and you end up with a divergent sum. And there is then, uh, if you follow this principle of computing the expected gain from participating in such a gamble, there is then no fee that would be too great for you to pay to enter this gamble. But the large gains are ridiculously unlikely. So the whole thing falls apart physically. It makes no sense. No one would pay a lot to enter into such a gamble. And that all makes perfect sense from for many different reasons. But mathematically, it's very, uh, it's a very clever um, uh, um, intervention by Bernoulli to say, well, this, you know, be careful. This just for mathematical reasons, this doesn't, this doesn't always work. And he literally writes it, he writes it in a letter to Mormont and they were sort of sending each other these, these little nuggets of, of mathematical insight or teasers or jokes. And so it's one of those, one of those jokes. He just drops it in there and says, ah, compute the expectation value of this. You'll find something very curious. That's his comment. <laughs> Understatement. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, understatement, exactly. So that's the bomb he's trying to throw into this, into this world of, of um, expectation values that were so dominant at the time. So 25 years later, in 1738, another Bernoulli, Daniel Bernoulli, comes along and he offers his answer to the St. Petersburg paradox. And, and what's his answer? Yeah, <sighs> So there are different levels, again, uh, to answer that question. Um, very broadly, his answer is don't think about the dollar amount amounts <clears throat> involved in a gamble, but think about the meaning of those amounts. So the, the meaning that you or I or anyone else individually idiosyncratically um, may may attach to such dollar amounts so someone very very rich may not really be terribly interested in winning a dollar or a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars and someone very poor may be very interested in winning a dollar or ten or a hundred or a thousand um, so and this is true I guess um, and Bernoulli says, well, let's just try to stick this into the mathematics. So try to find a way to incorporate the 
psychological aspect that is involved in human decision making um, into the mathematics. And he does this by inventing the the, the, the infamous utility function. It's it, it, there's nothing wrong with this in a sense. Uh, it's just circular in a way um, because you are trying to. So what happened here? So Nicholas Bernoulli came up with this with this gamble, and this turned into a puzzle. And the puzzle is if you offer the Saint Petersburg gamble to real people. Um, and you ask them how much would you pay to participate in such a gamble where I toss this coin and give you two, four, eight, whatever dollars, um, how much would you pay for this? Then people will say, well, pff, I'll give you three dollars. No one will say I'll give you a thousand dollars or a million dollars. So the, the, uh, the expectation value model completely fails in that case. Um, now you could phrase this by saying well people's preference is to uh, avoid the risks involved in this gamble and that is the phenomenon you're trying to explain and then the utility solution becomes very circular because it just says well let's write in mathematical terms uh, what people's preferences are um, but we already knew what their preferences were. Their preferences were not to pay much for this gamble. So now we invent some function that just says the same thing mathematically. So it's like saying the same thing in French or Italian. It doesn't really add to our understanding. It just it just restates the problem. So this is one criticism of the utility um, utility solution. So let's rejoin the ergodicity story, or rather begin the ergodicity story with Maxwell and Boltzmann in the 1860s and 1870s. So, so what happens? Talk, tell me about the birth of ergodicity. Yeah, so the, the dates are important, right? So you have, the, uh, you have Daniel Bernoulli's utility solution to the uh, St. Petersburg paradox in 1738 and this is a long time before ergodicity becomes a even a word let alone a concept um, <clears throat> and in the 19th century or at the beginning of the 19th century there wasn't really much probability theory in physics or let's say there was none. Um, physicists were stuck with this um, sort of clockwork universe image um, in, inspired by Newton, really, by the success of, of uh, Newton's laws. Um, so they loved their mechanics. Physics essentially was, was mechanics. Um, of course, there was people knew about optics and things like that but they were you know the, 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 the real the real deal was was mechanics and uh, well there was no randomness in those models and uh, probability theory felt like something for <laughs> you know something for gamblers or economists or people who are somehow exposed to the unknown in a different way from from uh, the way that that physics is exposed to it so they just they just sort of stayed away from it. 
But in the 19th century, the big technology that, that, that uh, came up was steam engines and industrial revolution, steam engines and so on. Um, <clears throat> and with steam engines, you um, people became very interested in <laughs> how they work <laughs> um, quantitatively. So we needed a theory for this and the theory is thermodynamics. Uh, so that's the theory of how you know gases expand and undergo phase transitions and and so on. So it's literally you know gases and boxes. That's steam engines. Um, <clears throat> and at some point in the 19th century, uh, people started to wonder about an underlying theory for thermodynamics. So was there some um, microscopic theory to explain? Uh, those phenomena, phenomena like pressure, temperature, volume of, of gases. Um, and, uh, well, the candidate explanation was a, uh, was a molecular theory, so a belief in molecules, in very small particles that are invisible, and there are very, very many of them, and they constitute gases. So this wasn't. This was quite uh, controversial at the time in the 19th century. This wasn't. Uh, this wasn't universally accepted at all. That that uh, um, gases were not continua but consisted of molecules. Um, and maybe because it was so controversial, people who worked on these theories were really pushed to to cross their T's and dot their I's, um, and. Uh, someone who started working on this early is Maxwell, and uh, then someone who really had to kind of fight for a molecular view was Boltzmann in, in Vienna. So continental Europe was maybe leaning a bit more towards the continuum theory of gases and not so much, they weren't so much into molecules. So Boltzmann was really pushed to, you know, to, to, to be very precise in all of his statements. So what did Boltzmann do? So Boltzmann said, well, uh, it's possible that these gases actually consist of little molecules and uh, these molecules follow Newton's laws, but there will be very, very many of these molecules. Uh, so if we wanted to describe the dynamics of a typical gas, we would have to write down so many coupled differential equations uh, of these molecules zipping around that we would never be able to write it down in our lifetimes. And if we wrote it down, then what would we do with that information? It's just, it's just useless, this, this approach of actually computing the individual trajectories of all molecules. So he was saying, well, but uh, in the end, we're not even interested in the trajectories of the individual molecules. We just want to know aggregate um, effects of those trajectories, like pressure, temperature, and so on. So these emergent properties from from the microscopic dynamics—that's what we're really interested in. We don't really care about the the actual uh, microscopic um, um, processes, trajectories that are that are happening. Um, and so he suggested, well, maybe we can just instead of actually computing everything individually, we can just describe this system probabilistically. And this was another, right, sort of another controversial idea. So he now introduces randomness into these pristine physical um, dynamical systems of mechanics. That's called statistical mechanics. Um, and as he 
does that, he realizes that um, these tools in in probability theory are sort of missing something because they always operate with these expectation values. And he says, well, I mean, what I'm really looking at here are trajectories of particles. Um, yes, there are many particles. So in a way, there's an ensemble of particles. So maybe these expectation values are okay, but uh, these particles move along trajectories. So some of the micro, uh, some of the macroscopic properties will be will really be time averages of something that is happening so for instance you might have a membrane um you know a balloon or something there's a pressure on the on the inside of the balloon from the particles that are hitting the membrane of uh, um of the balloon and uh if i'm measuring this pressure then i'm really taking a very long time average on the timescales, on the relevant timescales of the molecules hitting the balloon. So I'm, I'm, I'm averaging over time when I'm taking a pressure measurement. So let's say I stick a pressure gauge into the balloon, or I just use a pressure gauge. It's, it's a very inert large object. So I'm recording, you know, billions of collisions of molecules um, over time, over a very long time, uh, um, when I'm taking a pressure measurement. So he's saying, he realizes that there are two components to these sorts of averages. There's a temporal component and there's an ensemble component. And he starts asking himself, he wants to work with ensemble averages because um, they are, well, they're easier to work with. But he he, he raises this red flag and he says, well, it's, we need to think here uh, carefully that, um, you know, there's there's the temporal element. And now I'll just assume that it doesn't really matter whether we're averaging over time or over a suitably defined statistical ensemble. Um, and uh, this assumption I call the ergodic assumption. So I'll just say this is okay. And then based on this assumption, he makes all kinds of predictions. And those are the predictions of equilibrium statistical mechanics. And they work very well so long as the equilibrium conditions are, are satisfied. So the justification for the ergodic hypothesis in, in Boltzmann is kind of experimental. It's just that the predictions are so accurate and so good that you say, well, this seems to be a reasonable, a reasonable assumption. Um, but he does introduce this question, right? And then curiously, around the same time, it's always the same. You have these ideas that come up and they're sort of in the air, right? As the sort of mm. zeitgeist. I mean, so Nietzsche wrote his passage that you read out earlier on around that time thinking thinking about time um, and its irreversibility mm. and uh, there's also someone in in cambridge um uh what's his name uh, whitworth who starts thinking about gambling in these terms and he says well you know but isn't that isn't that also a problem in gambling so if i'm gambling sequentially uh don't I face different, um, a different kind of effect from the randomness than if I'm gambling in many, many systems in parallel? And so he starts working, he basically makes the ergodicity argument in 1870 or so. He doesn't call it that. I don't know if he was aware of Boltzmann's work specifically, but it, it was around that time, so it was, it was in the air. So he makes this he makes this argument somewhere in 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 his book, um, 
and then curiously retires from Cambridge and becomes a, a vicar at All Saints Church in London. I I don't know what happened there. If he just, you know, um, became frustrated because people weren't really listening to what he was saying. Um, I don't know, but that's that's just yeah. I I could imagine that. So you 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 have the agonistic concept explicitly introduced by Boltzmann in the context of statistical mechanics, and uh, you have this way of thinking uh, popping up here there specifically in in Whitworth uh, in the 1870s in the gambling context, and then it's it's sort of every few decades someone discovers it, rediscovers it, and says, "Isn't this how you should approach these problems?" and um, You know, you have you have Ito's work in the 1940s, um, which is very neat. It's very easily applied to this uh, to these problems. So we use it we use it all the time. Um, and then the 1950s, you have uh, you have Kelly. Um, then there was some big resistance from some economists to Kelly. So these, you get these repeated sort of discoveries of this approach, and it feels like it never really gains the sort of visibility or support that it sh that it deserves, um, and and it then dies down again, um, or it it stays confined to some, you know, some some smallish group of of people. So the Kelly criterion is known to every gambler of course but probably to most investors um, but it's not really used to um, revisit these big outstanding theoretical problems in in economics or decision theory so that's that's sort of what we are doing right we're, we're saying well how what is it is it just a special case of something more general can we can we do more with this and uh, you know can we go back to Can we go back to Bernoulli and find different solutions there? Can we um, explain some of the observations in behavioral economics, uh, risk aversion, loss aversion, biases? Um, do they actually have a physical explanation if we, if we put on these ergodicity classes? So one of your collaborators throughout your ergodicity story has been Mari Gelman the Nobel Prize winning physicist. In February 2016, you and Murray had your paper evaluating gambles using dynamics published in the journal Chaos. And I think it became the most read Chaos article of that year. What what's it like what was it like working with Murray? And how would you describe his mind? I enjoyed it tremendously working with Murray. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I can describe his mind. I mean, but Murray is, uh, you know, Murray was an absolute exception. It's, it's, he's not your average physics Nobel Prize laureate, as you probably know. Um, so this was a very, very special person to to work with or, you know, to have as a friend. Um, 
think one thing that I noticed was his ability to detach himself from um, ways of thinking that we were developing or ideas that he had. And I think that's, I haven't seen it to that degree in anyone else I've come across. So, I mean, you know, when you start thinking about a problem, in the process of thinking, you develop a perspective and you develop that perspective and you have to give it a bit of breathing space. You have to say, well, let's run with this idea for a little bit. And you do that. And as you run with the idea, you sort of tend to fall in love with it. And before you know it, you've become uncritical of the mm -hmm. idea. And Murray was just outstanding at not falling in love with ideas. So he would, you know, we would be sitting there and <laughs> I'd get all excited about, I don't know, some, you know, whatever it is, some, some, some way of thinking, some kind of idea. And, uh, and Murray would go along for a little bit and then suddenly look up and say, so why is this wrong? Just to, you know, provoke that part of the mind that may have fallen asleep in the process of, <laughs> of giving the idea breathing space. So literally this phrase, why is this wrong, uh, kind of stuck in my mind, you know, to, to always um, uh, keep getting back to that mm. and say, okay, you've, you've developed some nice thing, but why is it wrong? Because everything is wrong. Right, so this is this is sort of the baseline. It, it, it's guaranteed. Whatever you come up with has limited applicability in 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 reality, and may even be formally wrong. Right, there there are a million reasons of why something might be might be wrong, but certainly when it comes to describing physical reality, any sort of formal theory has its limits. Um, so it's a good question not to ask: Is this wrong, or is this really true? No, just ask yourself, why is this wrong? Um, so, I don't know, but I... It's funny, man. Most, pe most, people would, most people would ask themselves the exact opposite question about an idea that they were wedded to. Why is this right? Perhaps they'd ask why <laughs> other people's ideas are wrong, but it's almost like we should in completely invert that yeah. practice. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the other thing, I mean, you're asking, you're asking about Murray... Um, It, there was something there was something cheeky about him that I enjoyed tremendously it's um, um, I don't know how to I don't know how to say it it was some kind of I remember a talk that I gave and he was he was in the audience and um, you know we were already working together he was he was aware of, of my thoughts and we came out of the room and he said to me he said to me I felt that there was a lack of joy in the room and what he meant by that was that good thinking good ideas are identifiable by the joy they generate so if you feel joyful after, you know, hearing 
a seminar. If if this really if it feels right, then there's something there. And if there is, if you see someone give a good seminar and and you feel the response in the audience is off, then you might say something like that, right? So he he sort of felt well. This this kind of deserved a bit more happiness from. <laughs> from the people in the room and I, you know so it was a very nice compliment that that he paid me there but i think there's something deeper to it and it's this notion of of being let, letting your sense of joy guide you as you as you think through problems there's you know something aesthetic something about taste he also used the word taste sometimes mm-hmm something intuitive yes and i think specifically related to this kind of smirk you know <laughs> sort of some kind of a smile that it, that it puts on your face mm-hmm. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah sort of quality <laughs> so so economics how does it think about ergodicity and how has ergodicity been defined within the economics literature over time i mean obviously outside of this podcast conversation you and i have have had a brief discussion by email about some of the the different definitions floating around in the economics literature um i have to say i'm i'm basically confused and i don't feel like i have a good handle on how economists think about ergodicity, ergodicity or what they mean when they say ergodicity but do you have I mean being charitable do you have any kind of sense of, of how it's, that term is used how the profession thinks about it I mean I think you know economics is less well defined than, than other um, scientific disciplines and um, this term I'm I, I'm, I'm, oh, you're just a just an arrogant physicist. I, I think it's in the it's the nature of the beast. No, it's, no, no, no. I don't. I don't mean it. I, um, <laughs> I agree. I agree. And I, so, first of all, I agree with you. I'm confused, as you know. I've said this by email too. Um, I don't. But uh, so I do. I, but the, the simple answer is I don't know. I don't know what they mean when they say ergodicity but part of the reason is that they is a large diverse group and some people mean this and some people mean that so it's not one of the established Mm -hmm. terms in the field Mm -hmm. Um, if you pick up a paper on um, economic inequality sometimes you get a precise definition of ergodicity that I find recognizable so you, you know people might actually write down a stochastic process as a model of uh, wealth as it evolves over generations of people in an economy, something like that. And then uh, they ask themselves whether uh, the the distribution of wealth in an economy converges to some stationary uh, limit. And, um, And then they speak about ergodicity um, as as that uh, as that convergence, because once you converge to this this state, then over very very long time scales, and that's usually you know what you consider in, in the strict 
a goodicity question. If, if you average somebody's wealth or relative wealth uh, over a very, very long time, then you will get the same result as if you average over uh, uh, every body's wealth in the economy if it's in this stationary limit so there i can i can recognize it so this is a right this is a branch where where we can we can connect um but in the broader debate i think <laughs> it, it is less well defined and it sometimes seems to mean something like um an openness of the future so I can see that these concepts are inspired by um, the mathematical concept of ergodicity, but they really are applied to <laughs> you know the physical objects and not not mathematical objects. So it it is sort of an analogy, a metaphor, um, something like that. But I think it it, it it's this notion that. Um, the future is truly open. So when, when some of these economists say mm, the economy is not ergodic, they mean something like there may be an innovation next year that we can't even dream of today. And therefore, modeling where things might go in a quantitative way is extremely difficult. Or you know, or they say, well, looking at past data will not be informative of the future. Well, I mean, of course, you only have past data, so that just means you can't, there's just nothing you can say about the future if you if you take that too literally. But it's this sort of notion that it can, you know, that there, there are sort of these radical changes in the economy that, that are likely to be missed by any model we, we build of it. That, but I'm really guessing, right? I feel that there are many different uses of the term out there and this this is i don't know this is roughly what i've taken from what i've seen do you agree i mean you, you, you were actually looking into this more i think when it's used in that metaphor yeah i i looked into it myself and i actually spoke with with john k's current research assistant matt about this and he was quite helpful. Um, he directed me to, to some more pieces of literature that, that actually provide more rigorous definitions. And I mean, whether you characterize them as being within the economics literature is another question. Um, I guess like functionally they are. Like there's, there's one econometrics textbook, which is popular and, and widely read, which gives quite a formal definition. So, so that's one thing. I mean, you can go back to Paul Samuelson in... His 1968 article, where he talks about the erg the ergodic hypothesis, but you know, as you know, Ole, that it's kind of unclear what he actually means, and whether he indeed actually believes in it when he discusses it. Um, another economist, Paul Davidson, who has has kind of critiqued Samuelson over the decades, has a a, a reasonably technical definition. Um, so if you go to Paul Davidson's 19 82, 83 article, Rational Expectations, a fallacious foundation for studying crucial decision-making processes. He says, if a stochastic process is stationary, then the statistical averages are the same at every point of time. If the stochastic process is ergodic, then for an infinite realization, the time and statistical averages will coincide. But then moving forward in time, there, there are many examples of 
that more metaphorical usage you described. So, like, there's a recent article by Paul Collier, an economist who I admire, like a, a, a really great man, but a recent article in the New Statesman where he, he writes that even bad ideas can be self-fulfilling, the fancy term being ergodicity. And uh, um, other Richard Bookstaber, in his book, The End of Theory, an ergodic process is same old, same old. It is one that does not vary with time or experience. It follows the same probabilities today as it did in the distant past and will in the distant future. Quoting here. And then later in the book, he says, to know if we are in an ergodic world, we can ask a simple question. Does history matter? End quote. And so I feel like when it's used in that metaphorical sense, it's almost conflated. Ergodicity is conflated with stationarity, which is not even correct in itself because as you know a process can be both stationary and non-ergodic or it could be non-stationary and ergodic so i feel like yeah i'm i'm just confused i don't think i don't think there's like a a settled definition um i think my 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 inclination is to to be charitable to the people who are using it metaphorically and to just say, okay, they're meaning something like stationarity or non-stationarity, you know, radical uncertainty. Um, I'm, I'm not even sure it's... it's uh, well, not even sure they mean stationarity or it, that, that's not so much the problem. Yeah, I could be wrong about that. So first of all, I, th- I think it's totally fine. You know, words uh, acquire different meanings through mm-hmm. through time. All kinds of words, not just technical words, but you know, um, and those meanings change. And you know what what Rick says in his book that sounds reasonable. Uh, I, I I see. I see where he's coming from. I see how you can uh, spend a lot of time looking at the ergodicity problem in mathematics or in physics and then um, make such statements, right, about does history matter? I don't think that's good. So if I'm speaking to a a colleague Mm. in physics or mathematics and I say something like that, they will know what I mean. And it's okay. That's how you you speak. if I put it in a popular book, that's you know, you're free to put whatever you want in your in your in your book. Um, but the danger is that people might think this is the definition of this term, and because the term has a specific technical definition, you might then draw wrong conclusions, right? Because you sort of you think you can establish whether something is ergodic or not by by answering the question whether history matters. Um, and then once you've answered that question, which is clearly a question about the physical world and stories that you hear and what you read in the newspaper and so on, not about mathematical objects. But once you've established the answer to this to this question, you then go back to your mathematical model and say, oh, look, here we can assume ergodicity. It's fine because history doesn't matter or, you know, or we shouldn't because it matters. Um, and, and that would be wrong because then you're drawing conclusions about mathematical objects based on stories that don't really have anything to do with them. 
Mm. Proceeding with your definition of ergodicity, the definition we discussed at, at the very beginning of the conversation, how is it relevant to economics and finance? What is the, the ergodicity economics critique of expected utility theory? We'll start with expected utility theory. So, yeah, expected utility theory is probably is probably a good point to start because it's a touching point. It's um, there's a there's a mapping, so we can take um, um, the approach of ergodicity economics and answer the sorts of questions that are usually answered using expected utility theory. So those are those questions are uh, you know should I take this gamble should I well basically should I take this gamble so you you're buying a lottery ticket and it's offered at some price you know the probabilities of the various uh, uh, prizes um, and you can now ask yourself uh, is this is this a risk worth taking and expected utility theory if you specify a utility function can answer that question for you Agodicity economics can also answer that question for you if you specify a wealth dynamic because you need to know what happens over time and without dynamic information you you don't um, you well, you don't you don't know um, so in both cases in expected utility theory and in agodicity economics you recognize the original problem as underspecified. So if I'm presenting you with with a gamble, St. Petersburg paradox, whatever it is, um, you can't really answer the question whether this gamble is worth taking or not unless I give you some extra information. Utility theory does that through the utility function. Agodicity economics does that through the dynamic. Um, The utility function is a psychological concept it's supposed to summarize your preferences, your risk preferences, essentially. Um, and that's something that's very difficult to observe. You you can try to infer it by asking people a lot of questions about whether they'd like this gamble or that gamble, but it then becomes very self-referential. It becomes sort of circular because you are right. You are, you need information about people's risk preferences in order to answer a question about their risk preferences. So, <laughs> um, you know, you might as well just ask them, do you want to take this gamble or not? Um, so that may be the critique. The circularity is really the critique. With agodicity economics, the missing piece of information is the dynamic, but the dynamic is something we can we can reason about more clearly. It's not, we don't have to look into your head. We don't have to, you know, we, 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 we don't need neuroscience or, or, or psychology for this um, we really need to know your circumstances we need to know we need to know more about the story so you know for instance we need to know can you repeat this gamble uh, is it what other gambles are you currently playing is it the part at what part in your life history is this gamble sitting right what are your other commitments and opportunities in life and how old are you? Uh, those those are stories that that, uh, that, that uh, parts of the mm-hmm. story that 
Context, yeah. Context. And it's this physical context that allows us to build reasonable models of the dynamics. So, for example, um, you know, if you're very wealthy and uh, um, your, your income mostly derives from investments, um, then your wealth dynamic is mostly multiplicative because you, you, know, you invest in something that goes up some percent and, or down some percent. Um, and that's what determines your income. If, you, if you're not very rich um, or you have no money at all or maybe debt um, and you go to work every day, um, then your dynamic is not very multiplicative because um, you have nothing to invest. Uh, so it may be better described as something additive where at the end of every month you get some amount of money that may vary depending on whether you had a good month or a bad month. Uh, you know, your costs may fluctuate a bit, but it's it's not something where a, a, a multiplicative element is is very important. So by considering those sorts of circumstances, we can inform the kind of dynamic that we feel is a reasonable model for for you know your uh, your wealth essentially, and that then allows us to answer uh, uh, puzzles like like the St. Petersburg paradox. So I guess the the critique is. Utility theory, to some extent, is is circular because it answers questions about risk preferences only if you specify the risk preferences. Um, and uh, it, the the sorts of information that you the sort of information that you need in utility theory is difficult to obtain. It will always be very subjective it's just it's not really observable it's all in your head whereas the additional information that we need in uh agonistic economics is is more observable you can you can reason about it more more easily if geometric growth maximization is essentially the same as logarithmic utility maximization does it matter which one we use so technically, mathematically, no, um, but it matters in 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 the conceptualization. Um, in one case, in the expected utility case, you do what you do because that's who you are. Um, in the agonistic case, you do what you do because. <laughs> That's where you are, <laughs> right? So it's more about your circumstances. And of course, it's always a mix of the two in, in real life. You know that some people, I, 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 I strongly believe this, that some people are just by nature more risk averse than others. You put them in the identical situation, if that was ever possible, and you will see some people take a risk and others not. And systematically, I, I, I believe that. I don't know it, but it's my my intuition would say that that's that that's um, uh, true. Um, but your situation matters a lot, and probably a lot more than is usually assumed in economic theory, because it doesn't really have a good way of. Um, including the situation in in its models because it's all overridden by by psychology so the big right the the, the big effect 
or what's assumed to be the big effect, the dominant effect is psychology, and then you lose the information about um, about circumstance and, and situation. So the crucial thing missing from conventional conventional analysis is context, the context in which the decisions are being made. But I feel like I feel like economists would say that that's an unfair criticism and that context is considered in in you know much of the modern literature. Well, I mean, that's where we get back to a large, diverse field, you know. Um, I think this is a, a, if you can't really say economists do this or they do that because there are thousands who do very, very different things. And, you know, some of them think about nothing but context. Um, mm. it's, it's really the formal theories where I think we can improve things. It's... And and we've moved away, in a sense, from what well, we. I mean, economics has moved in emphasis from these formal theories to much more observational work. Um, you know, experiments became a big thing. Then there's behavioral, behavioral economics, economics. Um, and the the. I think this is related that somehow the formal theory only gets you so far because in some important cases it's just not informative and then at some point people just dropped it and said well this doesn't really help us much so let's just go and basically collect observations we don't even want a theory um, I think behavioral economics is sort of in that uh, on that end of the spectrum and almost a rejection of theory um, that just goes and says let's let's just let's just collect let's just collect data and summarize them in patterns that we think we find, and of course the problem is that many of these patterns don't reproduce and people got too excited about them and there's you know much too much of it and all these biases and so on priming right. and um, and but mm. other bits behavioral patterns that are observed in behavioral economics I think are real and may have explanations in terms of ergodicity economics so that's how I that's how I see the the, the connection right you have you have sort of very classical theory it's limited because it somewhere has this ergodicity error sitting in it then you get a move towards more observational work that goes a little bit off off the track because people get too excited about it and it becomes a bit of a monster um, and and then you have ergodicity economics that can explain more of the observations in a way that is you know somewhere more similar to the classical theory so in the sense that these are formal mathematical models that you can analyze you can even solve mm -hmm. them analytically in some cases um, and and you see some of the biases uh, emerging right so we I mean we have these papers on on cooperation and why people might want to cooperate you can of course you can explain this in terms of psychology but people just like working with others right 
But you can also ask, well, why do they like working with others? Is there some evolutionary benefit of doing that? And and we can see such benefits maybe at a more fundamental level than the literature is focused on at the moment. Mm-hmm. How do you think about framing effects, mental accounting, and status quo bias? Do they do they pose a challenge to ergodicity economics? Actually, let me... Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a way to reframe that question. What, what experimental evidence poses the biggest challenge to ergodicity economics? It depends on what you mean by ergodicity economics. So, I think, you know, what we've done so far is really using trivial null models and asking ourselves what sort of patterns we get. You know, do we get preference reversal? Yes, we do. You know, do we get risk aversion? Yes, we do. So, so uh, that's very nice. But these are ridiculous models, right? We are assuming infinite time horizons and we assume that we know the dynamics perfectly. And we, so we stick all these unrealistic assumptions into, into our models to see how far they get us. And what we see is that they get us really surprisingly far but that doesn't change the fact that the models are ridiculous right they're just very very simple so I would just expect these very simple ergodicity economics models like geometric ground emotion um, to make wrong predictions um, in in uh, you know in a large regime I mean think about uh, so what do we say so we're we're, we're, we're often considering uh, a simple temporal wealth maximization criterion right we say so people just act so as to optimize their wealth in the long run um, that may make absolutely no sense if you're coming to the end of your life and you are thinking about what to do with your wealth you know do you pass it on to your children that doesn't maximize your your wealth and then of course you can try to rescue this and say oh maybe it's some genetic whatever but maybe it's not you know or what if you're very rich you just you know i don't know you invented something and now you're a billionaire well, you don't need any more money. So maybe you just start giving that away because that feels like more fun. And I think that's where uh, the model of just maximizing wealth forever and ever is completely silly. So there will be lots of cases where these simple models are just nonsense. They just don't, they just don't apply. And you, you, I mean, we see mm-hmm. genuine philanthropy in the world, right? It's, it's a, clearly an observation. And this is not people maximizing their dollar wealth. What do you make of the criticism leveled by Jason Doctor, Peter Wacker, Tong Wang, the, the economists who replied to your Nature article, when they said that it's, it's inappropriate or incorrect to apply static 
expected utility theory to a dynamic context. It, it was never intended to apply to dynamic contexts. How would you respond to that? I would say that <laughs> I don't know what a non-dynamic context is. So it means there is a theory that exists, expected utility theory, that is made for an atemporal world where we don't have time, where we live in, well, we don't live because life needs time, but where we, you know, you lose your language. Exist is not the right word. Um, where there is, though not temporarily extended, an ensemble of possible universes you know and so this is sort of that sort of the critique I guess to say well these theories are made for a context that doesn't reflect reality because it doesn't include time this is one answer to that question another answer is um, well, to be honest I don't, I don't really mind so much about I'm not so interested in the performance of expected utility theory. It's just a dominant model out there, so it makes sense to look at what it does and what it doesn't do. If then someone comes along and says, I don't like this model either because it's not meant to solve these problems. Well, I mean, it was meant to solve these problems, clearly. That's why it was introduced. But uh, if it, for some reason, is just structurally unable to solve these problems, and I would say... I agree. It's structurally unable to solve those problems. That's our that's our point. Um, the positive point that we make, of course, is that we propose a starting point for addressing those problems dynamically. And I'm really not an expert in the uh, alternative models that try to incorporate these multi-period uh, games in, in utility theory. But uh, from everything we've seen, so my group has seen so far, those models just become very unwieldy. So that they're, they're just not, they're basically not usable um, in, in practice. And our models are usable in practice. They're, well, they're, just, very, they're just very simple. Um, so there may be other models out there, but I don't think they've been used much in practice because it just doesn't work. You just hit, you know, computational limits. If you actually try to practically use them, you you run into trouble. That's that's what I'm hearing. So I haven't really worked on this, but that's what my my colleagues tell me. I mean, we've taken right, we've taken all these criticisms on on board. You know, we're we're designing experiments with the group in in Copenhagen. Um, and uh, we're actually we're, we're collecting any kind of uh, criticisms we can we can find to see how we can um, tweak the experiments to see you know whether there are other models out there that do similarly well as um, agoristic economics um, and where exactly agoristic economics fails you know it's the question why is this wrong. Um, so we well, yes so we're trying you know we're trying we're trying to gather as much information as we can from from uh, critiques like that why was the copenhagen experiment so significant 
Because this was, a, I guess, a, an important moment for yeah, city Yeah, and I've thought about it a lot. So I can tell you a little bit. Okay, I'll tell you a little bit about the history, uh, how this came about. And it starts with the 2016 paper with, uh, with Murray. Um, and in that mm-hmm. paper, we address the question how you can evaluate gambles by using dynamics, by as- making assumptions about, about uh, wealth dynamics. And we play through these two uh, simple example dynamics. One is additive and one is multiplicative. So, uh, you know, very simply, a multiplicative dynamic, wealth dynamic, would be something where you toss a coin and if it's heads, you uh, win some percentage of your current wealth and if it's tails, you lose some percentage of your current wealth. And an additive dynamic is where you toss a coin and if it's heads, you win some dollar amount, some fixed dollar amount, and if it's tails, you lose some fixed dollar amount. And we go through how uh, one might evaluate gambles depending on whether one's wealth um, uh, is subject to one or the other dynamic. And in the additive dynamic, you get uh, uh, risk neutrality in certain limits. And in the other dynamic, you get um, uh, logarithmic risk aversion. So you get the equivalent of, of logarithmic um, utility theory. Uh, so we wrote this paper, and you can then later, you can generalize the dynamic and do more with this, but we put those two specific dynamics in there. And this group from Copenhagen picked up the paper and said, well, this sounds like it can be tested in an experiment. We can just present someone with a sequence of multiplicative gambles and uh, let that person make choices. And from the choices, we infer what um, uh, utility function the person has. And then we change the dynamics and we test the same person. We change the, dynam- the dynamics to additive, and we see uh, whether the risk preferences of that person change when we change the dynamic. This is something that utility theory can't handle, really, or it's not, um, it's not the perspective of utility theory. In utility theory, you have a utility function, so you will evaluate any gamble that is put before you according to this utility function and the dynamic is not part of the model it it doesn't exist in utility theory Um, in ergodicity economics you behave differently depending on which uh, dynamic you're you're facing so now you have a an experiment that at least in principle can discriminate between these two these two theories so it can say well if people essentially you know you take on a subject day one i give them additive dynamics day two i give them multiplicative dynamics and i can infer on both days a utility function and if that utility function is roughly the same then we would say well utility theory does a pretty good job here and if we see that the utility function changes as predicted by ergodicity economics then we would say hmm ergodicity economics does a better job here and so that's what these people did. And actually, they approached me before, <laughs> before they put the experiment together. And they said, we have this, we would like to do this. And at the time, I said, well, I, I really don't think this will work, you know, because my intuition was that um, 
life in general is multiplicative. I mean, sort of by definition, life is that which reproduces, which self-reproduces. So it's a multiplicative process. So, you know, the number of offspring grows exponentially. The, the, the number of coronaviruses grows exponentially. Anything in nature grows or decays um, uh, multiplicatively or exponentially. And I thought that this evolutionary fact would be so deeply ingrained in our psychology that we <clears throat> we basically all act according to logarithmic utility functions. So I had already made this sort of dynamic argument in my head and thought, what's, what's the most important dynamic that living things face? And somehow I thought, it will just be dominated by this by this evolutionary argument for for multiplicativity um, so i thought that if you try this experiment what you'll find is that irrespective of the wealth dynamic uh, people will just behave multiplicatively because they won't learn fast enough we've had billions of years to learn multiplicativity um, so if i stick you in a they even stick people in a scanner so if i <laughs> stick you in a scanner for an hour and show you some additive dynamics, you won't catch on, you won't You won't realize that the dynamics have changed and you'll just behave the same. So my prediction for the experiment was you will find no signal. And um, and I said, well, because you will find no signal, I'd really prefer if you didn't do the experiment because people will misinterpret this. I still think there's a lot of merit in, in uh, um, agonicity economics. And I think an experiment that just shows that there's no signal to be found of it uh, would you know would be would be kind of bad for a young for a young theory so it was sort of an anti I hadn't learned Murray's lesson yet or you know more charitably I thought it was too soon I wanted to develop this framework a little bit more to maybe think of situations where you can see a difference so they went away and didn't speak to me again uh and secretly did the experiment and then come back, came back and said, uh, we've done the experiment. And then I said, oh, no, you've done the experiment. Okay, so what happened? And, uh, and what happened was that they found an extremely strong signal. So you can see very, very clearly that people change um, utility functions depending on the dynamic. And to me, this was really, really surprising for many, many reasons. You know, I also thought that people, I mean, I'm sort of joking about the uh, I didn't want a negative result. Uh, I just thought the experiment couldn't possibly find a, a signal because um, I didn't really believe in these lab experiments where you, you know, you you let people play a game, but that's not their real life. So why would they care about wealth within the game rather than just caring about? the wealth they have outside the game and wouldn't that completely mess up the signal so so i had all these concerns that you just wouldn't find a signal um but these guys are very good they're, you know, they're neuroscientists they know how to design these experiments they know all the kind of weird effects that can happen and they know how to how to get around them and they're they're, they're very careful in their data analysis um so anyway they found a very strong uh, uh they found very strong experimental evidence for the, the the significance of of agoricity economics in you know in their experiment in their setup i mean another person who who um went down the the agoricity route is is brian arthur right so his his work on these polya urns i don't know if you're familiar with that um <coughs> uh uses 
ergodicity breaking to explain um, phenomena in in economics uh, that are otherwise maybe difficult to explain. So it's sort of it's very similar in flavor to to what we're doing. But he he has a specific example. <clears throat> so his example or his key example is um, a, a technology capturing market share. So let's say you have a few competing technologies and um, uh, you know one of them emerges as dominant in the market, as 90% market share or something like that. Then you can ask yourself, does this mean that this technology is much better than the others? And classically, that's sort of a first guess, right? You would just say, well, it's the best product. That's why people are buying it. And Brian used this uh, this uh, polio urn model as a as a mathematical example where there is no difference between products but one product may end up dominant even though even if it's the worst product it can still dominate so the the polio urn is is, is the following you imagine you imagine an urn and you put two balls in that urn a red one and a white one and then you stick your hand in and you pull one out at random. And then you put, so let's say you pull out the, the red ball. And if you've pulled out the red ball, you put two red balls back in the urn. And then again, you stick your hand in and you pull out one ball at random. And if it's again red, you put two red balls in. If it's white, you put two white balls in. And so as you keep doing this, the fraction of red balls in the urn evolves to something. And the curious thing here is that uh, it stabilizes. This fraction over time converges to a value, but the value it converges to is a uniformly random variable in the interval 0 to 1. And he used this as an analogy to, for, for um, uh, uh, the, the, the evolution of market share among competing technologies so you can, you can you can do this with many different colors of balls in your urn and those may be the different uh the different technologies that are competing and for no reason whatsoever if you play this game once you know some technology ends up with 87 percent market share and if you start all over again that technology may have one percent market share because there's actually no difference between them but they can still dominate in a stable way and so this is a kind of, this is ergodicity breaking, right? Um, the time average of the fraction of red balls in the urn is one thing, let's say 87%, but the expectation value is, uh, is a half, I guess, for any color in the urn. And the time average is different every time you play, you play the game. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's the literal same definition of ergodicity that, that, uh, that we use, and you can use it in this, uh, in this economic context. And it reminds me a little bit of, uh, of George, of course, right, with his uh, reflexivity ideas and so on. So that simply the fact that you have chosen some ball makes mm. that ball more dominant. Not, it had nothing to do with the, the inherent properties of, of this ball. Besides ergodicity economics, what, what do you think is the most promising branch of non-mainstream economics? I mean, promising in what way? Maybe... <clears throat> yeah, exciting? Maybe exciting. Uh, or important. So... 
or urgent or something like that. Joyous. I mean, I'm I'm very concerned about uh, you know resource limitations and and uh, climate change and you know th those those are issues that we have to really think about and, and I think it's something where agonistic economics puts you in a reasonable mindset on one level but not on another level so um, when you start doing agonistic economics the first thing you write down is a t to infinity limit so you know what happens in the long run the moment you start thinking about what happens in the long run you have to start thinking about sustainability right that's that that's sort of clear i think um but then the next step in agoristic economics is often this assumption that people just try to optimize for growth now <laughs> that seems to be a fairly good description it does seem to be what people are doing but it's not necessarily a good thing right so that is something that i find quite disconcerting that from from what we're doing it looks like there's a lot of growth maximization going on and from what we're seeing on a planetary scale we may have to move away from what we we have to move away from that um and anything that that goes in that direction i think is very is very urgent and very important and i hope that um agonistic economics can contribute in some way to that you know to that debate what does it mean to be rational in light of ergodicity economics well that's another one of these terms that has been sort of defined in too many different ways in economics um, mm. so I'd probably stay away from it but if you if you want to introduce it in the context of this theory you know in the simplest case it's just optimizing growth over time optimizing wealth growth over time whereas in expected utility theory it is optimizing expected utility of wealth over the ensemble so those are the two different definitions of rationality that you could mm -hmm. attach to those two uh, frameworks of thinking Finally, Ole, I want to invite you to speculate with me on political philosophy and culture. So, two questions. Does ergodic theory lend itself to a particular political philosophy? If we accept ergodic theory, for example, should we lean more towards Burkean conservatism? So... I, I think no. Uh, I mean, the, my, my my answer to the first question is is no. I think it's apolitical. Um, what may make it political is that existing theory is one-sided, and we're adding the the other side to. Um, to the reasoning so maybe take this example of um, of the cooperation story where you can show that under certain 
fairly general conditions, simple pooling and sharing of resources, repeated pooling and sharing of resources leads to faster growth for the individual. So it's something that is um, um, favored by, by evolution. And this is a route into complexity theory. Um, you don't get complex anything without cooperation. So you need to build aggregates of something in order to to uh, get complexity. So, you know, imagine a bunch of cells floating around in some primordial soup. They need to start forming cooperatives. They need to start forming pairs or larger agglomerations um, in order to become organisms in the end. So there has to be some sort of a benefit for these things to stick together and start building function. And um, okay, and so you can make one argument along the lines of, of resource sharing. So this now says, uh, if you look at expected wealth, then pooling and sharing your resources has no benefit. And that makes perfect sense. Uh, it, it can't have a benefit because you've already averaged over the ensemble. So it's, it's as if by taking the ensemble average, you assume that all possible cooperation has already happened. And then if you compare it to actually including cooperation in your model, then of course nothing changes. So there's no benefit of doing it. If you consider the time average of an individual entity that may be affected by, by fluctuations and risk and randomness and so on, and now you let this individual entity cooperate with another entity, you can reduce the fluctuations, you can reduce all those nonlinear effects, and you can boost time average growth for this individual entity. So now you have something where ergodicity economics tells you that uh, there is a fundamental benefit to cooperation. Some people would now take this and, and run with it and say, oh, you see, therefore we should all pool our resources <laughs> and live under communism, right? And that would be a political interpretation. But I don't think that interpretation is valid. And if you, if you go to the next step in the analysis, then you see that the reason that cooperation or one precondition for cooperation to be beneficial over time is diversity. So you need these individuals that cooperate to experience different strands of randomness. And if by introducing cooperation, you make everyone the same, then you lose the diversity and you lose the benefit of cooperation. So it becomes, it becomes a much more involved story. And uh, the simple political messages out of this, uh, I think, don't exist. You, you, will, you will have to really continue thinking hard whether you know the form of cooperation that you may introduce in order to capture its benefits is worth it does it you know does it cost too much are the structures that you're building in order to enable this cooperation just too high so they you know they outweigh the benefits or are we losing diversity because we are building these gigantic i don't know you know cooperatives whatever whatever they may be um so I think the answers are always really nuanced. Um, and I, I don't think there's a simple political message that comes out of this, which I think is great. And it's something that I notice. I notice that people uh, from 
you know, if you want to split politics into a left-right spectrum, I notice that people from the left and from the right of the spectrum look at ergodicity economics and say, hmm, this makes sense to me. And I think that's good because, you know, it's supposed to be a scientific theory. It's not really... It, it would be odd if only people on the left believed in relativity or in electrodynamics. I don't know. Um, electromagnetism is a, is a right-wing concept. That, that's just, that just doesn't make any sense. So if you want a scientific theory of anything, it shouldn't, its credibility shouldn't correlate with, with political views. Is there something in our culture that causes us to overlook the importance of time and see everything through a built-in ergodic lens? Yeah, I think that goes back to the beginning where we started, you know, when we were thinking about sort of ancient roots of... You were asking why did it take so long to even develop a theory of, of randomness? And in a way, what we were dodging... Uh, up until that time was the issue of time, right? We we had this ancient image of, yes, time down here on Earth, but then the, the, the timeless uh, celestial world. And somehow we are always very, very, very uncomfortable acknowledging the reality of time because, you know, we all know where this leads, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's our demise. So... Um, yeah, sure. We have we have a massive psychological hurdle to overcome if we want to really include time in our thinking, in our theories, or in our everyday thinking. Ole Peters, thank you so much for your time. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. For links, show notes, transcripts, everything that was discussed, head to thejspod.org. The audio engineer for the Jolly Swagman podcast is Lawrence Moorfield. Our video editor is Alf Eddy. I'm Joe Walker. Until next time, thank you for listening. Ciao.